The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. Am I willing? He said, Be clean. I am willing. He said, Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Move down to the next paragraph. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had where he had come from. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowering the, the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. All right, Sam, it's all yours. Well, exactly 30 years ago, I went to university. 30 years ago at university, we had to handwrite our assignments. And if we want to be ooh, special, we could use one of these, a typewriter. 30 years ago, when I was at university, we didn't have the internet. And so I, re I remember when I organised an overseas hospital placement in Africa, I had to write to that hospital with one of these, an aerogram. And it took three weeks to get there. And so they would reply with an aerogram, and it took another three weeks to get a reply. So it took six weeks to have a conversation to someone overseas. 30 years ago at university, we didn't have mobile phones. So this was my mobile phone. It was a 10-cent coin which I fed into our public phone. And when I worked as a doctor at Westmead Hospital 25 years ago, I carried a pager. So when I was the encore doctor, if there was an emergency, they would page me. My pager would go off and then I would have to drive around, around, around in my car looking for a public phone to call the hospital back. So much has changed in 30 years. We now have the internet, we have emails, we have smartphones. The world has become faster, more connected, more convenient. So whoever invented these things sure made a difference. So welcome to the forum. 
in the month of May, we're doing a four-week series on life. And we're looking at the four big questions on life. Am I making a difference? Am I somebody to someone? Am I having fun along the way? And will I be remembered? And we use these questions to measure the quality of our life. Because if we can say yes to these questions, then we can say our life is significant, it's worthwhile, it's of value. And so in this series, we'll look at each of these questions one by one and see what the Bible might say about them. And so I will give a 20-minute talk followed by about 10 minutes of question and answer. And so today is week one, question one, am I making a difference? So what does it mean to make a difference? Well, I'm going to define making a difference as this. We make a difference when we somehow add to the well-being of someone. We make a difference when we somehow add to the well-being of the world. And maybe we make a difference by teaching a kid how to read, maybe by visiting a sick friend, maybe by driving a neighbour to the shops. And in doing so, we have added to the well-being of that person. We've added to the well-being of the world and we have made a difference. And we can say our life is significant, worthwhile and of value. So our question then today is this, am I making a difference? And there'll be three parts to this talk. In the first part, we'll look at what, why. Why do we want to make a difference? In the middle part of the talk, we'll look at what problems. What are the problems we're trying to make a difference? And in the final part of the talk, we'll look at, well, what does the Bible have to say? What does the Bible have to say about making a difference? So let's go to the first part of the talk. Why? Why do we want to make a difference? And here I've got two things to suggest. Number one, we want to make a difference because someone once made a difference in our life. Why do we want to make a difference? Because someone once made a difference in our life. I have a friend called Paul, and I found this photo of him off the internet. And I'm a friend of Paul's, and once I emailed him a few years ago, and Paul never replied my email. And then about a week later, he did reply. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry for my slow reply, but my appendix ruptured last week, and I was in hospital, and they had to operate on me, but I am home now. And being a doctor, I cheekily emailed Paul back and said, that is incredible, because if your appendix had ruptured 100 years ago, you'd be dead now. But now, because of antibiotics, you're alive and you're writing emails. See, if it wasn't for antibiotics, Paul would be dead. He would have a gravestone saying, here lies Paul dead at the age of 40. And that's why if we go to a cemetery now, we look at gravestones from about 50 or 100 years ago, people were dead before the age of 40 because they didn't have antibiotics. But now, because we have antibiotics, we just assume we're going to live to about 80 or 100. So whoever, whoever invented these things, antibiotics, sure made a difference in our lives. And that's sort of part of the reason why we too want to make a difference. Someone made a difference in our life, so we too should make a difference. Just as someone gave to us, we too should give back. Now, many of us are here in this room because our parents made a difference in our life. My parents moved from Hong Kong to Australia in the 1960s. And that's me there as a baby. And if you had asked my parents, why did they move from Hong Kong to Australia? They would say they did it for the children. And many people did that. They moved from a stable family, stable job, changed countries, moved to Australia. Why? And they would tell you they did it for the children. 
And so for many of us in this room, we are here because of what our parents did. They changed countries, they paid for our education, maybe they even helped pay for our housing. We are who we are because of our parents. What they did, what they gave up for us, they made a difference in our life. And maybe it wasn't our parents, maybe it was a school teacher or a soccer coach or a high school friend, but at some stage someone made a difference in our life and just as they gave to us, we too feel we should give something back and we too should make a difference. So that's the first reason why we might want to make a difference. The second reason why we might want to make a difference is this. The world needs us to make a difference. Why do we want to make a difference? Well, the world needs us to make a difference. The world can't stay the same. The world needs to be better than what it is now. My wife, Steph, and I, we have three boys. There they are, Toby, Cooper, Jonty, age seven, five, and three, and that's them doing zombie impersonations. And in our weaker moments, my wife and I often think, maybe we should try for number four. Maybe we should have a fourth kid. And so my wife and I have to weigh up the factors. Are we too old? Can we afford another child? And do we really want to have to buy a minivan? Do we want to become that family? But never once do we ask, is the fourth child worth dying for? We never ask, is this worth my wife Steph dying just so we can have a fourth child? Because in Australia, it's really, really, really rare for a woman to die while giving birth to a child. In Australia, the mother has a 0.00007 chance of dying in childbirth, seven in 100,000. But in developing countries, the risk of a mother dying while giving birth is one in 100, 0.01. In developing countries, 1,500 women die every day while giving birth. So let's say we're in Ethiopia right now instead of Australia. Each year in Ethiopia, 3,000 babies die in the first month of life. 25,000 women die from pregnancy. And 7,000 women, while trying to give birth, will develop this, an obstetric fistula. It's a hole that connects the bladder to the vagina and sometimes even to the rectum. And so now the woman leaks urine and sometimes feces uncontrollably out of her vagina. So she's permanently wet, dirty and smelly and cast out of society. But one Aussie is trying to make a difference and she is making a difference. Her name is Dr Catherine Hamlin. She's an obstetrician. For the last 50 years, she's dedicated her life to surgically operating, healing and fixing women with fistulas in Ethiopia. And she's been nominated twice for the Nobel Peace Prize because at great sacrifice, she is making a difference. And her work inspires us because we know if she can make a difference, we too should try to make a difference. And it's more than that. The world needs us to make a difference. We should try to make a difference. The world needs to be better than what it is right now. We can't sit back, ignore the problems of the world. And just as someone once gave to us, we too need to give something back. Just as someone made a difference in our life, we too need to make a difference. So that's the first part of the talk, why we might want to make a difference. Let's come to the middle part of the talk now. Well, what might be some problems with trying to make a difference? Problems, and here I suggest two things. Number one... There's always more that we can do. There's always more that we can do. 
And there's a famous parable. Two men are walking along a beach and they see thousands of starfish have been washed up from the ocean onto the sand and left there, they will die. So one man picks up one starfish and throws it back in the ocean. And the other man says to him, well, what difference did that make? And the man who threw the starfish says, well, to that starfish, it made a difference. Meaning, yes, the world and its problems are overwhelming and there's so much, too much that we can do, but the little that we do does make a difference. But there's a problem with that parable, and it's this. If the man could pick up one starfish, surely he should keep going and going and going. He should pick up another and another and another. He shouldn't stop, he shouldn't eat, he shouldn't sleep. He needs to keep going, going and going because there's always more that we can do. In the movie Schindler's List, Liam Neeson plays the role of Oscar Schindler. And in real life, Oscar Schindler made a difference. He saved over a thousand Jews from the gas chambers during the Holocaust of World War II by getting them out of the gas chambers and working for him in his factory. And so in real life, Oscar Schindler made a difference. But the movie ends with Oscar Schindler saying, I could have got more out. I could have got more out. I could have got more out. See, there's always more that we can do. Yes, we can make a difference, but it always seems like there's more that we can do and the little bit that we're doing isn't making enough of a difference. I started working in the city this year and it's the first time I've worked in the city. And I love the energy, the people, the buzz that we get in the city. But I've also noticed on my way to work, I pass a lot of homeless people. And so I asked myself, well, what should I do? I could give this person $5 but what do I do with the next homeless person and the next homeless person and the next homeless person I see? See, there's always more that I can do. And the problem becomes too big, too overwhelming. There's too much, it's too hard. And I get burdened with the guilt and the responsibility trying to fix up the world and its problems. So that's the first problem we're trying to make a difference. There's always more that we can do. The second problem is this. What are our motives? Why are we trying to make a difference? What are our motives? Now, Valentine's Day has just come and gone. And as a guy, there's always this question, what do you get your special loved one for Valentine's Day? Is it chocolates or is it flowers? Well, no, don't do that. Because nothing says I love you quite like a fishing rod. Or even better, a power tool. Or you could give what a nurse at work got from her husband, a log splitter. Nothing says I love you like a log splitter. Now, we all know why these are the wrong presents to give, because they're a gift for you rather than the other person. It looks like a gift on the outside, but on the inside, it's a selfish act. It's a gift for yourself. And it could be the same with trying to make a difference. A study in the Journal of Neuroscience found that people give because it makes us feel better. When we give or volunteer, it lights up the feel-good parts of our brains. And so we're rewarded when we give. It boosts our self-esteem. It makes us feel good about ourselves. It makes us feel like we're a better person. And maybe by, the, by, by itself, that's not too much a problem, but it can easily drift into wrong motivations, like we could have a saviour complex, or we could be very patronising when we're trying to make a difference. And so this can be a problem for us when we're trying to make a difference. On the outside, it looks like we're doing a selfless act, but on the inside, it's a selfish act. 
On the outside, it looks like we're giving, but maybe we're taking more than we are giving. It's a gift for ourselves more than it is a gift for the other person. So that's a problem trying to make a difference. There's always more that we can do, and maybe our motives aren't totally pure when we're trying to make a difference. So let's come to the final part now of the talk. What does the Bible have to say about making a difference? And we just heard two very short stories from the Bible, two stories about something that happened in the life of Jesus. And the first story was this. A man with a skin disease comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, pleads with him, if you want, can you make me well? And it says Jesus was moved. He was indignant. He was horrified by the man's situation. He was compassionate. And he said, of course I want to. And he healed the man from his skin, skin disease. And then we heard in the next story, there was a man who was paralysed. And he was so paralysed he couldn't walk, so he needed friends to carry his mat to bring him to Jesus. But because there was so much of a crowd around Jesus, the men couldn't get to Jesus. So they decided to climb the roof of the building, dig a hole in the ceiling, and they slowly lowered the man the paralyzed man on his mat there in front of the crowds and in front of Jesus. And Jesus was amazed by what these guys had done. And then he said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now get up, take up your mat and walk home. And the man did. So from these two mini stories, I think we can say at least two things, two things about trying to make a difference. Number one is this. God does make a difference. God came into our world to make a difference. God does make a difference. The turning point in George Bush's presidency came 10 years ago in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and up to 2,000 people were killed because of the hurricane. And it was a turning point in Bush's presidency because it gave the public the impression, rightly or wrongly, that Bush was completely out of control, out of touch with the world. And this is the famous or infamous photo of President Bush. It's an iconic photo. It's Bush in his presidential plane, circling, hovering above the hurricane site, and Bush looking out at the disaster area. And it shows Bush watching from a distance, almost too distant to care and too powerless to help. Here's helpless at this moment. And maybe that's how God seems to us, because that's how Hollywood portrays God to us. This is the God of Bruce Almighty. Lovely person watching us from a distant, but too distant to care and too powerless to help. He's helpless. We are left to help ourselves. But in the stories about Jesus, we see that God is not like that. God sends Jesus into our world. God's not distant. Jesus comes near into our world. And God is not uncaring. Jesus is horrified by the man's situation. He cares. He has compassion. And God is not helpless or powerless. We read that Jesus is powerful. He has authority to forgive sins and heal the man from his skin disease and also heal the man who's paralyzed. He says to him, take your mat, get up and walk. So we hear here that God loves us so much. He wants to make a difference. And God is powerful enough he does make a difference. But then if you're like me, you're asking this question now. Well, why is the world still so messed up? Why is the world still so messed up if God is in control and God loves us so much? 
Well, here we have to sort of zoom back from these stories and look at the whole story of the Bible. And we know from the whole story of the Bible that there's still a chapter to come. One day Jesus will come again, and on that day he will right all wrongs, wipe away every tear, and fix up all the problems in his world. So we know from the whole story of the Bible that God has it all under control, and one day he will fix everything up. The world and its problems may seem overwhelming, but God's got it all under control. But then what about in the meantime? What about today? Well, then the answer comes in these stories. God does make a difference, even today, but through the actions of people like us. See, in this story where the paralyzed man couldn't get to Jesus, his friends brought him to Jesus. And when the friends couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowds, they dug a hole in the roof and lowered him down there in front of Jesus. And it says Jesus was amazed at the friends' faith, at what the friends had done. And because of that, he said to the man, your sins are forgiven, and also get up and walk. Meaning what, and what this means is this, God does make a difference, even today, but through the actions of people like you and me. And there's a big theme in the Bible where God does extraordinary things, but through ordinary people like you and me. So even the little bit that we can do makes a difference. God uses what we do to make a difference, even today, even now. God does extraordinary things, but through the actions of ordinary people like us. So we have this fine, delicate tension in the Bible. On the one hand, we have this truth. We have a responsibility to make a difference. We can't just sit back and do nothing. But on the other hand, we have this other truth, this mutual truth, that God is in control. He's powerful, he loves us, and he will fix up all the problems in the world. And we need both to be true at once. Because if we only have this bit where we are responsible, then the world and its problems become too much and we're overwhelmed by guilt and not doing enough. If all we have is this bit where God is in control, then we just become fatalistic, passive and lazy and do nothing. But if we have both true at the same time, we realise God is in control, he makes a difference, but he does it through the actions of ordinary people like you and me. So that's the first thing we learn. God does make a difference. Second thing we learn in the story is this. We should also let God make a difference in our life first. Let God make a difference in our life first. Now, Jesus had a famous saying, and he said this, Before you take the speck out of someone else's eye, remove the log that's in your eye first. Which means, I think, in our context, in our question, before we try to fix up the world, maybe we need to get our own lives fixed up first. If we want to make a difference in the world, maybe we also need to let God make a difference in our life first. The most fascinating part of the story is this. When the paralyzed man is low there in front of Jesus, Jesus doesn't first say, hey, get up, walk. Instead, he says, your sins are forgiven. Which means before we worry about the sickness, the poverty and the injustice around us, maybe we need to first worry about the sickness the poverty and an injustice in our own hearts first, what the Bible calls sin. See, yes, the world and its problems are real, but they're symptoms of a deeper problem, the sin in our hearts. And so the greatest problem in the world is our human hearts, our hearts which have dishonoured, shamed and ignored God. And this has led to dysfunction in our own lives, in the way we relate to other people, the way the world works and our relationship with God. And so if we want to make a difference, 
Maybe this is where we need to begin. We need God to make a difference in our life first. And this is what Jesus offers in the story, to forgive our sins, to give us a fresh start, and to give us a clean heart with pure motives. And so now we're in a better place to make a difference in the lives of other people. So today is talk one, and we've looked at the first question. Am I making a difference? And this is what we've looked at. We've looked at, well, why do we want to make a difference? Well, because someone made a difference in our life, and also this world needs us to make a difference. Then we looked at some problems. Well, the problems seem too overwhelming. There's too much that we can do. And also, maybe our motives aren't totally pure when we're trying to make a difference. And finally, we looked at what the Bible says about making a difference. We read that God does make a difference, and he sent Jesus into our world to make a difference. And there will be a day when he fixes up all the problems in the world. But in the meantime, he works through people like you and me. He does extraordinary things through ordering people like you and me. And if we really want to make a difference in the world around us, let Jesus make a difference in our hearts first. Now, we began this talk by talking about the internet, emails, and smartphones. And I mentioned how 30 years ago when I was at university, we didn't have these things. And how now these things have made such a difference in our lives. Life is faster, more convenient, more connected. But there's also a dark side to the internet, to emails and to smartphones, which I didn't have to worry about when I was at school. Now our kids grow up with dangers and darkness and fears that I never had to worry about when I was growing up as a child. So in a sense, the internet, emails and smartphones have made a difference both for good and for bad. And maybe that... Maybe that's because the problem in the world isn't our lack of technology, but what we do with technology. The problem, in the end, is our human heart. And so if we really want to make a difference, we need to begin with a human heart. And if we really want to be honest, we need to begin with our own hearts first. And this is what Jesus offers us, a fresh start. He will forgive our sins, and he'll give us a clean heart, which will work with pure motives. And so Jesus offers to make a difference, not just in the world around us, but also in our own lives as well. The first question seemed to come from the last portion of your talk. Sure. Um, so if I follow Jesus, does that mean my life will be totally together? And will that mean that all my motives will be pure? All right, so if I follow Jesus, will that mean my life will be totally together and all my motives will be pure? All right, so uh, what does it mean? What does it look like when we follow Jesus? Well, first of all, Jesus doesn't promise us uh, a fantastic life, so it's not like he promises us uh, wealth and health and prosperity. In fact, he says life often will be harder because we follow Jesus. But what he offers us is a direction. And the more and more I read about what we need in life is we need a direction. If you were to jump in my car and I just went round and round and round the block, that would drive you nuts. And you say, where are we going? I'm saying, oh, nowhere. I'm just driving round and round and round. And it's the same with life. We need to be going somewhere. We need a direction. Uh, uh, even relationships always begin with pleasure, you know, dinner, movies, and, and the romance. But after all, there needs to be a direction, and the couple need to ask the question, where are we going with this? And usually a relationship breaks down when it's obvious it's not going anywhere. Job satisfaction usually plateaus around 10 years, because after you've trained and you've got competent, now you sort of think, well, where am I going with this? And life is the same, where am I going in my life? Where is my life going? I need a purpose, I need a direction. And Jesus makes his uh, promises. He says, follow me. Follow me. Uh, the journey won't be easy. 
Uh, but now you'll be living for me and you have direction. And in life, we always have to be living for someone or something. Otherwise, oh, we're living for nothing. And Jesus said, well, I'll be that something or someone you can live for. So there's a direction, there's a purpose in our life. So what is that direction? What is that purpose? Well, amongst many things, the Bible tells us Jesus loves us just the way we are. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to earn his love, gain his affection. He loves us just the way we are. But he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. So he's got a plan, he's got a purpose for our life. He's going to change us slowly from the inside out. And so now we're on a journey. And the journey is as much the adventure as the destination. We're a, we're a work in progress. So that brings us to the second half of the question, will my motives now be totally pure? And the Bible says no. No, we'll always have mixed motives uh, because we'll always be a work in progress. We'll always be a journey. And it's almost like kids growing up. They're always growing, always growing, always growing. And sometimes they can't see that they've grown and an outsider can see that they, wow, you have changed. Wow, uh, look at you now. And that really annoys a kid, doesn't it? Like, it stops saying that, but it's true. And it's the same with us. Uh, on the journey with Jesus, often we can't feel we're changing. It feels very slow. But other people uh, maybe will comment, wow, you have changed and we're a work in progress. So our motives won't totally be pure, but um, in one sense we've arrived because we have... Um, Someone to live for, but in another sense, we're still journeying with Jesus. Sure. In making a difference to other people's lives with our efforts and the good things, both to the others and also to ourselves. Yes. But why do you think it's necessary to have God at the center of our life to do those good things? All right. So making difference is important, but why is it necessary to have God at the center of our lives to, to make a difference? All right, so that's very good. So the question is, do I really need God at the center of my life to make a difference? And it's a yes and no answer because the Bible is very clear that God blesses people with goodness, truth, and beauty, whether they follow him or not. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you trust him or not, whether you follow him or not, he will bless you with goodness, truth, and beauty. There's a verse in the Bible that says God sends rain on everyone, whether they believe in Jesus or they don't believe in Jesus. So God has what's called common blessings to everyone, and that could be food, warmth, shelter, sex, relationships, marriage, that sort of thing. These are common blessings from God. So all goodness, all truth, all beauty can be enjoyed by all people. And it means they can also be agents of goodness, truth, and beauty as well. So that means as a kid, I can learn maths from someone, no matter what they believe, whether God's at the center of life or not at the center. It's still true. It's maths. I can enjoy art from someone, uh, uh, whether they believe in Jesus or not. So in that sense, uh, no, it's not necessary because we can all be agents of God and be agents of truth, beauty and goodness. But in another sense, uh, we miss out on a deeper, a deeper, deeper level of goodness, truth and beauty uh, because an intimate knowledge of God means we have a more intimate knowledge of the truth, good and beauty that comes from him. That's one way of looking at it. And also it comes back down to that, the motive thing. What is motivating me when I do this? So on the one hand, uh, we, we, ha- we can have good motives, even without God. I want to make a difference. Society needs to benefit. And even though I'm getting something out of this, at least someone else is benefiting. But uh, by having God at the centre, in some way we're saying, wow, I'm doing this for you, God, uh, and you're being glorified, and, and I'm being an agent of, of your truth, good, and beauty. Yeah, yeah. How do, I, how do I know? How do I know? How do I know if my motives are pure and from God? Well, maybe even we're just asking that question. That's a good place to start. But the clear thing in the Bible is motives are the most important thing. 
Uh, someone asked a question this morning, how do I judge the goodness of my action? Uh, is there a calculus, is there an algorithm that we can use? And what's fascinating is in the 18th and 19th centuries, people did try to come up with algorithms and calculuses for calculating the goodness of an action. And people like Ben Time and, and John Stuart Mill try to come up with ways of calculating the goodness of an action. And in ethics, we always think, okay, do I look at the action performed? Is that what makes an action good? Do I look at the results, the benefits of the action? Or do I look at the character, the actor, the motives... And it's interesting, Aristotle says this, virtue ethics says this, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, and Paul in the letters of the New Testament says this. It's not so much the action, it's not so much the benefits or the consequences or the results, it's really the motives, the heart of the person that, that we use to decide whether something's good or bad, right and wrong. So I think that question is asking the right question, and how do I know, how do I know, how do I know... I guess you just got to examine yourself and just keep asking, why, why, why am I doing this? Is this for me to get glory? Am I benefiting from this? Is this so I can get status, feel like I'm somebody, feel like I've arrived, get recognition? So in that sense, these are very mixed motives. Or am I really purely wanting this to benefit the other person? And also, if I have a relationship with God, am I trying to glorify God, let him get the glory? Yes, you're an extraordinary God. I'm just an ordinary person. So these amazing things that I get to do, but really that's because you're an extraordinary God using me just as an ordinary person to get these things done. Just one more question. Sure. Um, How can there be a difference in this as far as uh, the quantifying this whole thing? Is a man who maybe saves the thousands in what he does but yet neglects his family, Mm. Where's the balance? Where's the priority? How do we calculate this? Uh, What about the man who saves a thousand people but neglects one person in his own own family? Uh, This is this is what they study in ethics all the time. They throw these hypothetical case scenarios at you. You know, like uh, if you had one life jacket, would you give it to the eight-year-old girl or the eight-year-old man? And very interesting, in the West you always give it to the eight-year-old girl, in Africa you always give it to the eight-year-old man. The, the village is invested in the man. So it's interesting, even cultures have different ways of answering these questions. So it goes back to that prior question, is there a way we can calculate it? And now in the 21st century postmodern world, we look back and think, okay, that's quite a mistaken, naive enterprise, because we're not dealing with these things in abstract, we're dealing with them in real contexts and situations where we're actually in relationship with the people that we're doing good to. So relationships have become a core part of what we do. But again, it all goes back to motives. What are the motives? So it's not like, do I save a thousand lives? Do I save one life? Does a stranger have priority over family? It all comes down to character, motives, why. In the end, we've got to be able to answer this question, why? Just why am I doing this? The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.